Daylight savings time. Mmm. Hate it. Pointless. Farmers have lights now. Should have been rid of it years ago. Hello and good morning to everybody except Kathleen Kennedy. If you haven't seen the new South Park special, I highly recommend it. I don't believe I've giggled that much in months. Randy and Cartman shine per usual. This week, I found myself struggling to start writing this episode. And I think that's because I have the entire next week off before I start my new job on Sunday. So my mind's telling me I don't have to be as productive as usual. But you're wrong, brain. We like writing, okay? Writing is fun. Plus, I actually do need to get just a wee bit ahead of schedule since I'll hopefully be hosting two guests in the near future. And who knows what my new work schedule will look like. So, yes, Eli, time to kick it in, dang it. With that being said, let's jump into today's story before I fall too far off the tracks. My name is Eli, and this is Murder in the Morning. First of all, um, you know how I like my side notes. Here's a quick true crime anniversary. If you want to skip to the actual murder part, the story of it all, that's about three or four minutes in. I'm sorry. The website Crime and Investigative UK has this wonderful daily subsection called This Day in Crime, and it just essentially covers important historical stories or events that happened each day. And every day there's a new article and it's just a a brief fun read. Today happened to be the story of an attempted heist, one that I had never heard of. On November 7th of the year 2000, seven thieves set out to rob the Millennium Dome in London. For those who don't know, like me, the Millennium Dome was built as a massive exhibition area able to be used for various events, concerts, galleries, sports games, essentially even the Olympics, etc. Quote, the plan, carefully orchestrated by local villains Lee Wenham, Raymond Betson, and William Cockram, was to conduct a ram raid on the De Beers Diamond Exhibition being held in the Dome at the time, and to make off in a speedboat down the Thames River, the Thames River, with 350 million pounds of diamonds on display. The Millennium Jewels collection, including the Millennium Star, a 203-carat flawless gem that is considered to be one of the most perfect in the world, as well as 11 other priceless blue diamonds. These jewels had played a central role in the spectacular light show that took place in the Dome during the Millennium festivities. At 9.30 a.m. that morning, the plot was afoot. With all the villains in place, Meredith in the getaway boat on the Thames River outside of the dome, Millman in a van nearby, and four more men in a, quote, JCB earth digger, which would be used to break through the perimeter fence and punch a hole into the side of the dome itself. Like full Ocean's Eleven style. Having successfully broken through into the vault area using this earth digger and discharging their smoke bombs, the police overwhelmed the gang through sheer force of numbers. They were able to apprehend most of those involved 
seven in all, without firing any weapons, including the boat pilot, millman in his van, and a number of others who were waiting further downriver in Kent. The largest robbery in history was over almost before it had begun, and the real Millennium Jewels were nowhere near the dome at the time. End quote. Which is why many people have probably not heard about it unless you're from the area or you research heists. It was an elaborate plan foiled halfway through. What had happened was, I'm not sure how, but local police or investigators had essentially uncovered this plot before it had happened. So the day they knew that the thieves were going to attempt this heist, they removed the real diamonds and put fake diamonds in, in place just in case they succeeded in the, in the attempt. But a bunch of law enforcement were obviously waiting for them essentially inside of the vault and apprehended them immediately. Had they succeeded, there most definitely would have been a movie about this. Anywho, I love that website, and I thought I would share that fun fact with you. Okie dokie. Sorry again for the side quest. Often labeled as the most famous unsolved case in Finnish history, today I bring you none other than the Lake Bodum murders. My sources today come from Wikipedia, Crime and, Invest Crime and Investigation UK, Discover Walks blog, a Medium article by Chloe Wells, and then the website Historic Mysteries. Lake Bodum, spelled B-O-D-O-M, is located in the city of Espoo, not far from Helsinki itself. The lake measures approximately three kilometers in length and one kilometer in width. Surrounded by villages and beautiful large pine trees, it's reported to be a tranquil lake, a, tra a peaceful lake haunted only by its history. On June 5th, 1960, three teenagers were brutally slain inside their tent and a fourth was found barely breathing just outside. The night before, four Finnish teenagers had, deci had decided to camp along the shore of Lake Bodum, near the city of Espoo's, forgive my pronunciation, Oeta Manor. Mala Bjorklund and Anna Mackey were both aged 15 at the time. With them were their boyfriends, Seppo Boisman and Nils Gustafsson, Gustafsson both 18. I really do apologize for any of the mispronunciations on those names. My finish is not up to par. Quote, they'd ridden the roughly 30 kilometers or 18 miles west to the camping spot on the boys' motorcycles, which they'd parked up, parked leaning up against two trees next to where they had chosen to pitch their light-colored tent. The four were celebrating the end of the school year and perhaps Mally's or Molly's 16th birthday, which would be on June 6th. The boys would soon be off to do their army service, but for now, the summer stretched ahead. End quote. Sometime between 4 and 6 a.m. on the morning of the 5th, an attacker bludgeoned and stabbed all four teenagers, brutally ending, the th ending, brutally ending three of their lives. The odd part, though, is that he never entered the tent. Instead, the perpetrator and attacker collapsed the tent from the outside and blindly smashed and stabbed through the tent lining. Mackie, Bjorklund, and Boisman all died due to the injuries. 
Nils Gustafsson, the only survivor, suffered fractured facial bones and stab wounds. At roughly 11 a.m., a carpenter by the name of Esco happened across this horrific sign and alerted authorities. The first among many mistakes that the police made was to not cordon off the crime scene. Within hours, it had been trampled to a pulp. And on top of that, for some reasons beyond me, the investigators didn't take down any notes of the scene. I guess they all thought their memories were top-notch. And what they did end up finding wasn't much. To start, the murder weapons were never found. It's still only suspected that the killer used a rock and a knife. Never confirmed. I mean, the knife was, but the blunt instrument is just assumed to have been a rock. The killer had taken an odd assortment of items, including Gustafsson's shoes, which he then left 500 meters from the tent, as well as the keys to the motorcycles, which again, he ended up not taking. And this puzzled the police. Who could have done this? Why would they have done this? Why target four teens camping? And where's the motive? Over the years, there have been many suspects who have come and gone. But today, we'll just go over a few of the more notable people of interest throughout the years. Okay, suspect number one, Valdemir Gilstrom. Quote, many local people suspected Carl Valdemir Gilstrom, a kiosk keeper from Oyata, known to have been hostile towards campers. Police found no hard evidence connecting him to the actual murders, and they were skeptical of the supposed confessions he was said to have made because they considered this man disturbed. He later drowned in Lake Bodum in 1969, which was presumed to have been suicide. The people in the town knew Valdemir as violent. He would cut down tents. He threw rocks at people who came to his street. And some have later said that it was him they saw coming back from the murder scene, but were too afraid to call the police about him. The police never recovered any DNA from Gilstrom, and this lead went quiet. Suspect number two, Hans Asman. This guy's real name is Hans Asman. A-S-S-M-A-N-N. Can you imagine a worse name? I mean, and no shade to my mother, I love you. But her maiden name is Grossman, which may not have been ideal while teaching high schoolers for 25 some odd years. But Asman? Ugh. The most public suspicion focused on this Hans Asman, who lived several kilometers from the shore of Lake Bodum. A series of popular books pushed a theory of Asman committing the Bodum killings and other murders. It was not taken seriously by the police, as Asman had an alibi for the night of the Bodum murders, and was said to have been in Germany during the time of another murder. Asman. On the morning of June 6, 1960, however, he had shown up at a hospital in Helsinki with bloody clothes. Hans was also a suspect in five other cases, even confessing to one on his deathbed. But yet again, this lead went quiet. Asman. Suspect number three. Penti Soininen. During the mid-1960s, 
an individual named Penti Soinen, known for his violent tendencies, claimed to a fellow inmate that he was responsible for the heinous murders that occurred at Lake Bodum. However, a significant piece of evidence challenges the notion of Soinen being the perpetrator. His age. During the Lake Bodum attack, he would have been approximately 14 years old. Many question whether he could have single-handedly overpowered four older teenagers, casting doubt on his involvement and his confession. End quote. So yet again, that lead went quiet. That last suspect, however unlikely, is horrifying. I have recently, in past episodes, talked about children murderers, and it wouldn't be the first time. Let's say you were 14, and you wanted to kill four people. Maybe they bullied you, or didn't want to go to prom with you, or I don't know what it was. If you were to trap them inside and attack them while asleep with a rock and a knife, if that's all you had, I feel like that would have given him the highest chance of success, I suppose. We have seen kids do worse. And now, as cold cases do, this investigation goes silent for over four decades. Then, for the twist I was not prepared for. In March of 2004, Nils Gustafsson, I feel like I'm saying that different every single time, was arrested and charged with the murders of his friends in 1960, years prior. This move was sparked by new forensic, forensic analysis done on Nils's shoes. Those shoes found 50 meters away from the tent. Quote, According to the prosecution's interpretation of the bloodstains, Gustafsson had been drunk and excluded from the tent when he attacked the other boy, getting his jaw, bro getting his jaw broken in a fight, which escalated into him committing three murders. The trial started on August 4, 2005. Nils' defense lawyer argued that the murders were the work of one or more outsiders and that Gustafsson would have been incapable of killing three people given the extent of his injuries. It had always been known that the shoes worn by the killer and hidden by him 500 yards away belonged to Nils Gustafsson, who was found barefoot on top of the tent. Modern DNA analysis was significant for the prosecution, as it showed that the three murdered victims' blood was on Gustafsson's shoes, but Nils's blood was completely absent. Prosecution maintained this. Nils's injuries had occurred at a different time to the attack than the attack on the murder victims. His blood was the only blood not found on his shoes, and the only explanation of this was that Nils Gustafsson had committed the murders, then faked the theft of the items by hiding them and further injured himself and went back to the tent where, now barefoot, he pretended to be unconscious. The prosecution attempted to bolster their case by alleging an ident identification by two bird watchers of Gustafsson as a tall blonde man at the scene of the crime, as well as an assertion that had been overheard making an incriminating remark and also that a decade after a decade after the event, he had boasted to a woman about his guilt. End quote. I know that was very convoluted in a lot of words, but essentially, this arrest came from a few new testimonies and new DNA analysis. 
his blood was the only blood not found on the shoes, and he was barefoot. It seems like a good case. However, even with all of this newfound evidence and testimonials, on October 7, 2005, Nils Gustafsson was acquitted of all charges and rewarded 45,000 euros in damages and compensation. And so, the Lake Bodum murders remain unsolved. I know I've said this before. Normally, cold cases frustrate me so much that I can't fathom writing a whole story without a complete ending. But this one, it's just, it chills me to the bone. I had to cover it. Three teens slain inside of a tent. One survivor and no answers for over half of a century. My best guess, and not only because of his name, is Asman. Let's not forget about Asman. After doing a little more digging, because I need an ending acceptable to me, I came across something interesting. According to this article at historicmysteries.com, quote, during his initial questioning, Nils Gustafsson was put under hypnosis and asked to retrace the events in as much detail as possible. Having recalled what his alleged hacker may have looked like, he dictated the description to an artist who created a composite sketch of the man. Later, during one of the Bodum, Bodum victims' funerals, someone took a picture that showed a man greatly resembling this composite sketch. The identity of this mysterious man remains unknown. Some believe the strange figure was Hans Asman. And other sources, however, state that Asman didn't attend the funeral at all. End quote. The photo in question may be the eeriest thing I've ever laid my eyes on. The man circled and presumed to be Asman legitimately looks like a dead person. He has the eyes of a zombie. I'm telling you, please look this up. Just Google Lake Bodum Asman photo. Not, not just Asman. All that remains today is the haunting story of those teenagers senselessly murdered. Over the years, parents in Finland have created horse or like children horror stories to warn their children to act better. They would tell stories of the Lake Bodum murderer, calling him the boogeyman. And if children weren't on their best behavior around the lake, he just may find them too and they could be their next victims, which is mighty fucked up for parents to be telling their kids. I kind of hope that's phased out. But, I mean, I probably would have been on my best behavior if I knew that there was a Lake Bodum boogeyman. Sadly, this killer will likely never face justice, but it's important to rem remember the young victims whose names I'm embarrassingly, embarrassingly pronounced today and to keep their story alive. And that is all I have for you beautiful folks today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, if you have any episode suggestions, put them down below. I would love to hear any and all feedback. But that will be all. I will see y'all on Friday. Have a wonderful, gorgeous, awesome Tuesday. Bye-bye. Love you.
Asman. Asman. Country of origin, please. Asman redirects here. The Fuzili Jerry is the 107th episode of the sitcom Seinfeld, featuring the introduction of David Putty. The episode also features Kramer receiving vanity plates that says, Asman, as well as marital problems between George's parents. This is the 21st episode of the sixth season. It aired on April 27, 1995. Asman. Can I get anything else? Since its release, the Fuzili Jerry episode has seen positive critical reception and has appeared on rankings of the best Seinfeld episodes. Asman. Uh, A S S M A N. Ooh, I'm afraid that is incorrect.